Welcome to the PM&R Scholars Podcast. The following is a recording from one of our virtual education sessions. We were joined by Dr. Allison Capizzi, who is the Director of Traumatic Brain Injury at UC Davis and the co-director of the Multidisciplinary TBI Clinic. She joined us to discuss the basics of TBI medicine and some of the pearls of clinical practice. Hope you enjoy. We're super excited to have her, and I'm going to turn it over to her and let her get started. All right. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you, everybody. Like I mentioned while you were waiting to join the session, thank you for taking the time to join me this evening. I know, it, I mean, a lot of us are busy and have strange schedules right now. So I appreciate you taking the time to learn a little bit about brain injury and why I love it. Um, one reason I, I love doing talks like this is just that brain injury, no matter what you go into, will infiltrate your professional life. Um, you're going to see patients with brain injuries, even if you go into pain medicine, or if you're an internist, or um, an emergency medicine physician, you're going to see this. So um, my goal of this talk is really to give you a taste of traumatic brain injury and what we can do as PM&R doctors to help this population. Along the way, we're going to talk about some board relevant highlights, especially relevant for those who are PGY2s, um, who have to take the SAE exam, or um, even if you're just refreshing your knowledge um, at, towards the end of your residency. Um, and we're going to review some recent research because there is some, there are some really interesting articles and helpful articles out there now, um, guidelines and updates on prognosis, as well as uh, general management of patients with brain injuries. So I hope you'll enjoy that. Um, we'll start off with the definition of brain injury, and it's a lot of words on this slide, but what I really want you to take away from this is that a traumatic injury does not have to happen from hitting your head onto something or being struck by something or having a penetrating injury, like, um, a, like a gunshot wound to the head, for example. Um, it can happen just from an acceleration-deceleration injury like when you're in a car accident, you may not hit your head, maybe you were just rear-ended, but that whiplash um, can force the soft tissue of your brain up against that hard skull and cause a traumatic event. So know that uh, traumatic injury is not just from an actual, you know, what we would think of as a trauma, like hitting your head. Epidemiology, so this is a little bit of a dry slide, but it's important to take away that there's a lot of people in this country who experience traumatic brain injuries. A lot of people going into the emergency department. We're seeing a rise of cases. So the most recent gathering of data from the CDC suggests we have about 3 million people coming to the emergency department with TBI. And that's probably just because there's more awareness in the community now about traumatic injuries and more people are getting evaluated. But this data is only as good as the reporting, right? Because not everyone goes to the emergency department um, to be evaluated. So there's probably a lot more TBI out there. Um, also think about people who can't make it to the hospital um, or people who get to the hospital and are labeled as something else. So perhaps they had a traumatic brain injury, but they also had a spinal cord injury. So they're coded as spinal cord injury. And we missed that um, in the data. Also note this trimodal peak. So the incidence of traumatic brain injury is very high in the very young, like zero to four years old. Also in the teenage to young adult um, and the elderly. So you have this like trimodal peak 
of incidence for TBI. Um, TBI is again very prevalent, a um, lot of incidence of TBI compared to other things that are really common that we know about and from our medical training like breast cancer, uh, HIV, spinal cord injuries, MS, um, TBI is much more common than those conditions. Uh, why, why do people get TBIs? Well, falls. Falls are the number one reason. Um, but when you look at deaths compared to you know, TBI and deaths, people who fall um, aren't as likely to die as those who are in a motor vehicle accident or those who um, attempt suicide and are successful. And that suicide piece is actually rising in the literature in terms of the concern we have for this population, especially in those who've had a brain injury they're more likely to um, have um, suicidal ideation and um, attempt suicide. The breakdown of TBI severity in the United States, uh, what you can take away from this is that they're predominantly mild cases. Um, not to say that mild cases don't certainly have their own set of symptoms, um, but when we think about brain injury as a whole and as a spectrum, you're gonna see more people having mild injuries than moderate or severe injuries. Uh, criteria. So we have this criteria system to separate mild versus moderate versus severe brain injuries. I think it's a good point to make that this categor categorization system isn't perfect and people with mild injuries could certainly have structural abnormalities on a CAT scan, for example. Um, some institutions use the term mild complicated for um, patients who have a technically mild injury from, you know, Glasgow coma scale, post-traumatic amnesia, all of that, but they do have a little bit of blood on their CAT scan. Um, so know that it's not a perfect classification system, but it's very board relevant. It's really helpful when you're learning about traumatic brain injury um, to think about some of the different components that go into classifying these patients. Um, so structural imaging, that's usually a non-contrast CT scan that we typically will get um, based on the patient's characteristics when they come into the emergency department. You don't have to lose consciousness to have a traumatic brain injury, just like we mentioned in the definition of brain injury, you don't have to lose consciousness. You could just have an alteration of consciousness um, or post-traumatic amnesia. And post-traumatic amnesia and alteration of consciousness really are similar um, in the sense that you're not quite able to remember things the way that you normally do and you may not behave the way you normally do. Post-traumatic amnesia is this period of time after a traumatic injury where you're not consolidating memories. You're not making new memories the way you usually do. So people who are walking around and look fine after being in a car accident, for example, may not remember what you said to them or what they said to you five minutes, a few hours, a day after their injury, just because they're in that period of post-traumatic amnesia. Um, the Glasgow Coma Scale, you need to know this for any exam, for sure. Uh, very relevant in the acute phase of brain injury, um, not so relevant for long-term um, and prognostic um, applications of, of brain injury rehab, but know that uh, Glasgow Coma Scale is higher for those who are in a mild injury category, 13 to 15. Um, the moderate um, category, Glasgow Coma Scale is nine to 12, and then in the severe category, it's less than nine, so three to eight, because 
there is no zero in the Glasgow Coma Scale. The lowest score you could get is three. I don't want to go through a lot of pathophysiology because it's complicated and it can take a lot of time. There, I know um, Kathy Bell has done a lot of research on um, the pathophysiology for mild um, traumatic brain injuries and has shown that it's actually, you know, for people who experience a mild traumatic brain injury, they still have quite a bit of pathology going on at the cellular level. Um, you know that the primary injury is caused by the actual displacement of structures in the traumatic event. And within that primary injury category, there are focal injuries like cutting your scalp or um, cutting your brain, you know, brain tissue, skull fractures, bruising the brain, um, bleeding in the brain. And then there's also diffuse injuries where you can have uh, oxygen to the brain. The brain's very sensitive to lack of oxygen and sugar. Um, you can have diffuse axonal injury, which is more from the rotational forces on the brain during a trauma and swelling and edema. Swelling or edema is his name for swelling. Um, and then secondary injury caused by disruption in the blood flow and the metabolism that normally happens within the brain. Um, and I just included, again, a schematic of what happens in a whiplash injury, this coup, contra coup um, type of injury where even just with a deceleration, the soft tissue of the brain hits the front of the skull and then conversely hits the back of the skull and you end up with bruising at the front of the brain and at the back of the brain. So going into the primary um, pathophysiology in a little more detail to give you some um, radiographic examples, I think helps in the learning process. Um, so I, right here, I gave you an example from a patient I saw with an epidural hematoma. Um, just to orient you on the scan, if you're not familiar with reading CAT scans, this is a non-contrast head CT. Um, at the top where my arrow is, that's the front of the brain, down here is the back of the brain. Um, over here where my arrow is is the right and then the left has this big white lens-like or lentiform structure and that's blood. That's an epidural hematoma. Um, epidural hematomas look lens-like because they don't cross suture lines. So um, they're, they're not like the subdural um, hemorrhages or hematomas which layer along uh, underneath the dura. Um, these are above the dura so they get kind of cut off by the suture lines of the skull. Notice here that it's pushing, the, this, this hematoma here is pushing the brain over to the right side. These lateral ventricles should be along the falx cerebri here, the midline, but they're not. They're being pushed over to the right. So you're seeing midline shift. That's an emergency, um, and that's something that would need to be intervened upon. Um, another example of primary injury, subdural hematoma, like I mentioned just now, um, you get layering. So you can see here this white acute blood is layering just underneath the dura. Um, you see white as blood is white on a CAT scan for about three days after you have a traumatic injury. After about three days, it starts to become iso tonic, so isodense, um, where the brain tissue and the blood look about the same. And then at about two weeks to three weeks after the injury, that blood is gonna start to look darker than the surrounding tissue, um, just so that you are understanding the time frame um, when you're looking at these CAT scans. Uh, hematomas can certainly cause left to right midline shift. There's actually more morbidity associated with subdural hematomas than there is with 
epidural hematomas. So that's an important thing to consider. Um, and then uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage is also very common. And when I was in medical school, I felt like subarachnoid hemorrhage was only associated with aneurysms, very aneurysms, saccular aneurysms in the brain. Um, but we see traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage very commonly. Um, and you can see that because there's this hyperdense white stuff, this blood that's layering within the sulci and the basal cisterns. So you can see here it's layering in the sulci and the basal cisterns is what this black arrow is pointing at. Um, complications of subarachnoid hemorrhage are really interesting. So you can get vasospasm where the blood vessels within the brain start to spasm. Treatment for that is a calcium channel blocker, usually for about 21 days um, to prevent that spasm. And you can also get hydrocephalus from this, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, diffuse axonal injury, this causes a lot of long-term damage for patients, a lot of long-term sequelae. Um, this is caused by rotational forces, and really, rotational forces play a role in every kind of brain injury, even if it's a mild injury. So if you were to take an MRI of a person with a mild traumatic brain injury, you might actually see diffuse axonal injury. Um, so don't think that it's only for very severe types of brain injury. Um, you can really only see this on diffusion-weighted MRIs, um, and it's, you can kind of tell here this, on this DWI sequence, there's punctated hemorrhages um, and this gray-white matter interface. Diffuse axonal injury does lie on a spectrum, so you can have grade one, grade two, and grade three, and I outlined this on the slide that grade one is gray-white matter interface disruption, grade two involves the corpus callosum, and grade three involves the, the brainstem. So we've learned about epidemiology and pathophysiology, but how do we actually diagnose someone with a brain injury? Well, if they come with a gunshot wound to the head, it's pretty obvious, but um, sometimes it's not obvious. And sometimes someone comes in and you are suspicious of a brain injury, but you're not entirely sure. Um, there has been a lot of work in this area, spe specifically with sports concussion and with the VA, because many veterans and um, people who participate in sports experience mild brain injuries. Um, and there are tools out there. Uh, the VA has one published. It's available um, just if you Google VA TBI screening and evaluation, you can see a tool that um, goes through a list of symptoms that could be compatible with a TBI. Or um, there's a tool that also is something you can Google, the SCAP-5, the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool, um, meant to be used by medical professionals who have experience with brain injury, but does walk through a pretty comprehensive examination of a person you're, suspic you're suspicious of TBI for and um, you know, to help you through the process of evaluating them for TBI. Um, consider this, this, these three things on the bottom of the screen, plausible injury mechanism, signs and symptoms, and ruling out confounding factors was published in the recent um, concussion management guidelines, um, and I think is a helpful message. Um, but it's tough sometimes because a lot of symptoms of TBI are common in the regular population just without um, having had a brain injury. Um, a lot of people experience headaches. A lot of people have trouble sleeping. A lot of people struggle with symptoms of depression. Doesn't necessarily mean you had a TBI, um, but it also means that we should be addressing those things no matter what. And we can certainly do that as rehab doctors. 
Uh, I put this slide up here because I just saw this. Um, one of my good friends and colleagues sent this to me, the neurofilament light chain as a biomarker in traumatic brain injury. I think biomarkers are certainly going to take off. Um, I, I, there's been a lot of research thus far in biomarkers. Right now, they're not really standard practice. We don't wanna you know, assume that just taking a blood sample um, and having this present or absent means that that person did or did not have a traumatic brain injury. But um, it could be a piece of the puzzle, and I think it will happen in our lifetime um, that these biomarkers will be available for use, especially by um, first responders, emergency providers, um, those working with TBI patients in the acute phase. So the Glasgow Coma Scale, you'll certainly need to know it for an SAE, uh, any kind of rehab um, board exam. Um, it's very important for the acute phase of brain injury. It helps to classify patients, whether or not they're mild, moderate, or severe. Um, it helps to give you a heads up as to whether or not they may need further workup. Um, and perhaps they have something underlying that needs to be addressed, like increased intracranial pressure. Um, like I mentioned earlier, and the lowest score you can get on a GCS is three. Um, and the highest score you can get is 15. And people with a severe brain injury are a Glasgow Coma Scale of three to eight. Those with a moderate um, brain injury are classified as a GCS of nine to 12. And those with a GCS of 13 to 15 are classified as mild. Um, there's a lot that goes into management of traumatic brain injury. Of course, you want to perform the ABCs, make sure, I think it's ACB at this point, but airway, circulation, and breathing is stable patients, get imaging if it's warranted, evaluate for intracranial pressure. This is something I wanted to highlight in this introductory talk just because having elevated intracranial pressure has significant long-term consequences. Just like um, you know, having a lack of oxygen for a certain period of time has significant consequences on the brain and can lead to anoxic or hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Um, elevated intracranial pressure from a traumatic injury is certainly uh, can be fatal and can cause long-term neurologic damage. Um, to manage the intracranial pressure, um, you can, this is typically managed surgically, you can do just place a monitoring device um, so that you have an ability to track the pressure in the brain. This is done by neurosurgeons or you can do a craniotomy or craniectomy and I have this image of a craniotomy with a burr hole um, up here on the right side of the screen showing that in a craniotomy, they take a little piece of the skull out to evacuate the blood products that are causing pressure on the brain. Um, and in a hemicraniectomy, you actually have the, a piece of the skull taken off um, so that the brain can essentially breathe or expand as it needs to. This is an example of a patient that I saw on consult who had an emergent hemicraniectomy because they came into the emergency department, they'd had a boating accident, um, they'd hit their head, they had quite a bit of swelling, they had part of their skull taken off and left off. So you can see here that the skull is not complete. There's a, a piece of it that's missing and it's gonna be left off either frozen or they'll do, a, um, they'll construct a prosthetic one, like a, you know, made out of different material than bone um, to put it back on eventually when the swelling goes down. And you can see inside the brain, there's a lot of swelling. You can't see any sulci. So that's, that's a really swollen brain. The ventricles are compressed and there's blood products here. Um, 
about three weeks, uh, getting a repeat scan, you can see that 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 site has been more sunken in, still pretty swollen. Um, and because that brain, that, that brain, that piece of the skull is off, the ventricles now are allowed to expand. So you can get hydrocephalus or um, after a traumatic brain injury as a complication, but this ventriculomegaly that you see may not be hydrocephalus, it may just be because there's no skull, so the ventricles are enlarging because they have space. Um, and that was, again, that's about three weeks after the fact. And know that patients that have had a hemicraniectomy are walking around with a helmet on um, when they're up and out of bed um, to do their therapy so that they're not bumping their head against anything. Um, emphasizing intracranial pressure, that's something that needs to be managed in the acute phase of traumatic brain injury. And cerebral perfusion pressure, a testable concept. So I put this because it's a board relevant topic. You should be able to calculate a cerebral perfusion pressure and a map um, when they, if they give a word problem like on the SAE or the boards. Um, if cranial pressure is elevated, um, it's going to decrease your cerebral perfusion pressure. So, the, and that's a problem because the brain doesn't get the oxygen and the sugar that it wants. Um, I put this up here because not everyone has an obvious traumatic brain injury. Not everyone is a severe traumatic brain injury. So if someone's coming into the emergency department and they are mild, you may go through this tree, either the PCARN rule or the Canadian head CT rule to decide if you want to get a CAT scan. Um, CT scans have a lot of radiation. We try to limit radiation. Um, in our younger population, especially. Um, so, so this is just a tool and they're out there. You can Google this um, to use to help guide whether or not you should be getting head imaging when someone comes into the ED. Uh, an important thing in the acute phase as well as to consider nutrition. I think this is missed a lot. I saw this missed a lot when I was on the ICU rotations as an intern in the medicine department. Um, and I saw this missed a lot when I was on consults at the acute hospital as a fellow, that um, we, we do wanna be giving people nutrition early on because after a traumatic event, there is increased metabolism, increased energy expenditure, and the brain really needs sugar and your body really needs protein to heal. Um, uh, I put up here just some images. This is a PEG tube on the top of the screen, percutaneous endoscopy tube. Um, and then uh, this is a schematic showing a nasogastric tube or a Dobhoff tube. Either one can be used, goes through the nose, down into the stomach. Um, because often after a traumatic injury, people aren't able to protect their airway. They're not able to swallow normally. They may have dysphagia. Um, they may be in a coma, but still to feed them. Um, consciousness. We're not going to talk in depth about disorders of consciousness, but I really want to emphasize there's so much that we're learning now about consciousness and disorders of consciousness, and there's so much more that we can be doing for this population that is poorly understood and often misdiagnosed. So um, we use the term coma very loosely in the general population and even among physicians. But we're going to go through this trajectory of consciousness in just a bit. Know that consciousness is a function of the reticular activating system. 
and that damage can cause disorders of consciousness. The big picture after a traumatic injury is that here you Uh, looks like we're having some technical difficulties. Just give us a second. Just give us a few minutes. I think she has to log back in. Sorry about that. You froze. Yes. You just froze. Like were we on this? Let's see where we were at. Were we no. on this one? Yep. Yep. Right there. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. I'll pick back up. All right. So consciousness, the, um, the big picture of consciousness. So I know that we talked about unconsciousness and consciousness and, and coma as a limited condition. So no one stays in coma longer than about two to four weeks. Um, after that point, a patient would progress to vegetative state or something would happen, right? Like perhaps because of medical complications or a family decision, um, they aren't, uh, they're withdrawing care, but no one stays in coma long-term. Um, this notion that coma is uh, the state that people are in until they start to follow commands isn't very helpful because we can't always tell if people are trying to follow commands, but perhaps their brain injury was so severe that they just can't move their arms or legs or they just can't talk. Um, in coma, there are no sleep or wake cycles. You can assess this on an EEG, um, an electroencephalogram. Um, progressing to the vegetative state, in this state are unconscious, but they do have sleep and wake cycles, um, but they're not aware of their surrounding. And then in progressing into consciousness, in the minimally conscious state, people have awareness of their surroundings, very difficult to communicate with them um, in the way that we typically consider communication. So it may be hard using your standard neurologic exam to figure out if someone is truly conscious or unconscious. And that's why some of the tools that are developed for patients with disorders of consciousness, like the Coma Recovery Scale Revised, um, the JFK Coma Recovery Scale Revised, um, can be used to help 
suss out consciousness. And that's why disorders of consciousness programs like the one at Tier um, and others are really important for this population. Um, this slide is more for studying purposes um, to, to go through exactly what constitutes a coma, vegetative, minimally conscious, and emerged state. Um, but we've talked about all these different things already, so I'll move on. Coma duration and post-traumatic amnesia. So I put this up here because, uh, with a po I put post-traumatic amnesia up there with a star because relevant prognostic factor when you're thinking about traumatic brain injury and recovery. Um, the research time and time again shows that post-traumatic amnesia is really the best thing to help determine um, prognosis for a patient. Uh, but coma duration is also used as well. So uh, we'll go into prognosis a little more in depth at the end of the talk, but just know that severe disability is unlikely if a coma lasts less than two weeks, and good recovery is unlikely when a coma lasts more than a month. Conversely, in the PTA, which is this period of time where people are not forming new memories, um, the severe disability is unlikely when post-traumatic amnesia is less than two months and good recovery is unlikely when post-traumatic amnesia is more than three months. That said, people sometimes defy these rules, right? Some people do recover despite having post-traumatic amnesia period of longer than that. Um, so that's important. The, how do you assess for post-traumatic amnesia and see if a patient's out of post-traumatic amnesia? Well, you can do a few different tests. Um, the most common is the Galveston Orientation and Amnesia Test, the GOAT. Um, there are others. There's one developed for children called the COAT. Um, and there's the O-Log scale, which has a highest point of, or a, um, a demarcation point of 25, not 75. But the GOAT is very testable. Uh, know that you need to be um, scoring at least a 75 or higher on the GOAT for two consecutive days before you can be categorized as being out of post-traumatic amnesia for the purposes of the boards. And um, you know, most programs, they'll, they'll do this kind of a test. Most psychologists and neuropsychologists will be doing this test, but you can too, um, if you have some free time, uh, pull up the GOAT scale and go through it with your patient and see if they're out of post-traumatic amnesia. Um, the Rancho Los Amigos scale is definitely worth noting in this kind of a talk. It's not very helpful for patients or families in my experience, but it's very testable. And I highlighted four, five, and six because those are the most commonly tested on the boards. I use the mnemonic ka, ki, ka, four, five, six, ka being confused and agitated, ki being confused and inappropriate, and Ka, again, being confused and appropriate. So here you go. It's a trajectory that patients follow in general from the time that they get their brain injury until the time of recovery, but not everyone follows these rules. We'll go into some complications. Um, and there are so many complications that can happen as a result of a traumatic brain injury. So I'm not going to go into depth uh, on it, all of these. I'll just go into some of the ones that I think are really interesting and sometimes tricky. Um, no matter whether you have a mild injury or a severe injury, you can certainly have these kinds of complications. Um, these ones I listed on the left side of the screen are pretty common among those with milder injuries but also happen in severe brain injuries too. Cranial nerve injuries, including you know, 
cranial nerves that affect your sensation of the face, your vision, your swallowing function. Um, dizziness and vertigo, very common as an issue among those um, with head injuries. Um, and that can also be caused, this dizziness can also just be caused by having double vision because of having cranial nerve injuries. Sleep is a big problem. Reversal of the sleep-wake cycle is a big problem. Um, headaches, agitation, and some of these other ones listed on the right-hand side are very common um, or commonly seen. Not all of them are very common, but they're commonly seen. So you should be aware if you're a rehab doctor and you're, you're treating these patients. Um, Post-traumatic seizures. So this is really fascinating. I think it's, it's so interesting that this can happen after a traumatic injury. Um, in the immediate period, that being within the first 24 hours of a traumatic injury, um, it's, it's not, uh, we, we consider that to be a provoked seizure. So just having the trauma meant that you had the seizure. It's not necessarily gonna become a long-term issue but there's other ways of categorizing seizures that develop in the early period within the first week, late period, and then if you've had more than two unprovoked seizures at more than 24 hours apart, we would consider that post-traumatic epilepsy. You can have all sorts of kinds of seizures after a traumatic injury. It doesn't have to be a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So sometimes uh, when we're not seeing a lot of progress on a patient um, who's had a traumatic injury, um, and more suspicious of um, uh, subtle uh, seizures, then we get a 24 hour or as, at least a spot EEG just to assess whether um, their lack of progress is just because they're having seizures and they're in this post-ictal period where um, they can't really do anything with their in therapy. Um, late post-traumatic seizure risk factors. So people who have a penetrating injury like a gunshot wound to the head, um, certainly those who have had surgery or prolonged coma in the severe category, more severe category. Um, most patients who've had a traumatic injury and become hospitalized will get anti-epileptic therapy for a week because there's evidence that putting people on medication for a week can help prevent these early seizures. However, there's no evidence that keeping people on these anti-epileptics helps to prevent late seizures. So it's better to take people off of these agents because they do have sedating side effects. All anti-epileptics have some kind of suppression on the central nervous system, that's how they work. So they can make traumatic brain injury patients sedated and make it hard for them to recover their cognitive function. Um, so a lot of times at TIER, if we were worried about um, Keppra, for example, making people more tired or unable to participate in therapy, we might consider trying to wean them down or switching to a different anti-epileptic agent. Um, storming or paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity can happen after a brain injury and um, is, a is a fascinating phenomenon in which your brain, when it's injured, is unable to regulate your sympathetic nervous system. So little things that normally wouldn't bother your body, um, like having you know, a full bladder or being really tired or having pain, um, cause your sympathetic system to go into overdrive and people look really sick. They can look septic, they look very rigid, sweat, they can have fevers, they can be agitated, um, and that's all because of the damage of this disinhibition 
um, pathway in the brain. So under normal circumstances, your brain is constantly inhibiting and regulating your sympathetic nervous system. But when it's injured, it becomes um, unable to do that. And then your sympathetic nervous system can go into overdrive. It's a diagnosis of exclusion though, because there are many mimics like sepsis and you should certainly work patients up for sepsis. Um, make sure they don't have hydrocephalus, make sure um, underlying causes of the um, storming are addressed. If you've decided it's storming, try and address those things. Like if it's pain, try and address their pain. Um, a lot of these patients can't talk to you and say, hey doc, I'm in pain. So think about that. Um, uh, you know, as you're managing storming, you want to consider your toolbox. So it's not just repositioning the patient or giving them a cool blanket. Um, you also want to think about medications that can be useful in storming because it can be um, detrimental to their recovery. So things that kind of slow down the sympathetic drive like beta blockers, um, alpha agonists like clonidine, uh, benzodiazepines, these can all be used to help. Uh, Post-traumatic hydrocephalus, we've talked about that a little bit, or I've talked about that a little bit earlier on. Um, pretty common, actually, in severe brain injury patients. Um, can be caused either by outflow obstruction because there's so much debris in the brain and blood products being reabsorbed, um, or just by impaired CSF reabsorption or flow. Um, the risk factors are more severe injuries, having a craniectomy, older age, not everyone who has post-traumatic hydrocephalus presents with that wet, wacky, wobbly triad um, or mental status changes. It may just be that they're not progressing in their therapies the way that you would think that they should. So consider it if you're seeing a patient with a traumatic injury, especially on inpatient rehab, where you're seeing them every day, if they're plateauing, look for hydrocephalus. Um, this is a, these are some scans showing you ventricular megaly. So a, a CT scan can't tell you whether or not someone has hydrocephalus, but it can give you clues and you can correlate that clinically. A lot of the radiologists will tell you correlate clinically. And here are some ways that you can assess ventricular megaly and decide whether it's hydrocephalus. On the left side of the screen, you can see this is someone who had a traumatic injury a while ago and they have had wasting um, an atrophy of their brain tissue. So their sulci are really prominent. There's a lot of loss of brain tissue here. So in this case, I don't think that this patient is having um, increased pressure or even normal pressure hydrocephalus. It's probably just that their um, ventricles are enlarging because they have the space to do so. That's called ex vacuo. Um, on the right side of the screen, you'll see a patient um, example who has signs of um, of uh, sulcal effacement. So the sulci are getting squashed up against the side of the skull because there's increased pressure and the ventricles are enlarged and you can see there's some edema that's happening on the outside of the ventricles that's also a sign of a hydrocephalus or indicates hydrocephalus. The management is placing a shunt to drain the fluid. Know that the shunts can actually be adjusted, just so you know. Um, shunts can be adjusted the way that baclofen pumps can be adjusted um, in different settings um, to give different resistance to the uh, way that the shunt drains. Um, 
Spasticity, yes. So spasticity deserves its own talk. Uh, it's going to be hard to talk about the upper motor neuron syndrome in depth here, um, but spasticity, um, spastic dystonia, movement disorders, syndrome can happen after a traumatic injury. So I'm going to go through a couple of patient cases um, with video in the next slide, but just note with spasticity, it's velocity dependent resistance to passive stretch. So people become rigid and it's hard to move through their regular range of motion because of this increased tone. This happens because when there's damage at the cortex, again, this, the brain is constantly modulating, regulating your sympathetic nervous system. It's regulating your muscle. And that connection is disrupted. So the brain is no longer able to inhibit tone and when you lose that disinhibition you get increased tone at the muscle level um, i am so appreciative of the patients that signed the video release forms to be used for academic teaching purposes um, it's so great i think to be able to see some of this in action so on the left side of the screen you can see one of our really excellent physical therapists at tier um, and one of our patients who has had a brain injury and is now got this flexor pattern, their elbow is in flexion, their wrist is in flexion, the fingers are in flexion, and the ankle is stuck in plantar flexion. Um, and our therapist is going through the Tardu scale here where she's measuring how far the patient can move through their regular region. Um, and what we're doing here is we're doing this assessment before a trial for intrathecal baclofen pump therapy for this patient. Um, there are a lot of tools that we have to address spasticity. You can use therapy, you can do stretching, you can do serial casting to help improve the range of motion of the joint. You can inject with neurotoxin, um, such as botulinum toxin. You can inject with phenol and alcohol, which is much cheaper. Um, but more painful than, than neurotoxin. Um, and you can do intrathecal baclofen pump therapy. So we have a lot of tricks up our sleeve as brain injury docs and rehab docs um, to help these patients. And on the right side of the screen, this video is a patient with spastic dystonia. Dystonia is interesting because it gets worse with, with intentional movement. So this patient is just walking down the hallway and you could see that unintentionally, her arm is stuck out to the side. She can't lower it. Um, even though she wants to lower it and she wants to be able to walk without walking into a wall, um, that's an involuntary um, complication of her traumatic brain injury um, that has resulted in dystonia. Okay. All right, agitation and behavior management. So agitation is very common after a brain injury. Mood disorders are common. And if you're a PGY2 or you're an intern or a med student and, and someone comes to you and says, oh my gosh, this patient was so agitated, please give me a medicine to help them um, be less agitated, try and figure out why the patient is agitated to begin with. Um, a lot of these patients have trouble communicating with you. They have trouble getting their um, you know, telling you what's going on. So are they just restless? Are they just, um, you know, are they just irritable because they weren't sleeping well? Are they in pain? Um, 
there are a lot of things that you can do to help with these behaviors rather than tie people down in restraints and give them a lot of sedating medicines. Uh, I included a few examples here. You can give people a busy apron if they're really restless and just need to do something. Um, you can create a reward system for them. Um, there's calming strategies that we have. At TIER, we had a code PBS, um, which is a patient behavioral type of code where we got people to sort of evacuate the area, give the patient space when they're agitated rather than trying to force them into doing something that makes them more confused and upset. Um, again, it's just showing that there's a lot of strategies to help patients rather than using um, sedating medicines like Haldol or Zyprexa or Geodon. Uh, we try to avoid dopamine antagonists in the traumatic brain injury population because um, we've learned that dopamine is actually really important brain injury recovery, cognitive recovery, um, and, and giving people antipsychotics. Um, antipsychotics are anti-dopaminergic, and they can prolong post-traumatic amnesia, they can inhibit cognitive recovery, um, and have long-term side effects. So, so we like tardive dyskinesia, those sorts of things. So we try to avoid that if possible. Um, you know, there, there's likely still risk with atypical antipsychotics like Zyprexa, Geodon, Risperidone. Um, we often will reach for those in severe cases where the patient's being physically abusive and we can't um, get anywhere with them. In that situation, the benefit of, of medicating outweighs the risk, but know that we really do try and avoid those things in this population. Um, I wanted to go through all kinds of different treatment options because there's so many tools that we have as physiatrists to help patients. Um, it's just so much. So I want you to know that there's a lot of avenues for rehab for the patient. Um, we have inpatient rehab in the hospital. You have rehabilitation in long-term acute care, skilled nursing facilities, rehabilitation in post-acute brain injury facilities. Um, of course, institutionalizing patients is not as ideal as being at home and being with loved ones, but having that initial period in the hospital to do aggressive rehabilitation really helps their recovery and is absolutely necessary. Um, there's the thing that frustrates me and frustrates a lot of us in brain injury rehab is that um, insurance companies, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS, still don't include cognitive measures as criteria for admission to inpatient rehab. Um, I wanted to show you an article, um, just a highlight of an article, so if you'd like to look this up on your, on your free time um, and review this guideline showing the summary of the evidence for cognitive therapy for people who have had a brain injury. Um, often these people are the walking wounded, right? They're, they're able to you know, move around physically, they're able to talk, but there's still a lot of cognitive deficits and we want to help reintegrate these people into the community. Um, let's go on to the next one. Uh, so this is the last section of my talk um, and I wanna to touch on prognosis and outcome, just looking at the high points of some of the recent literature that we have. Um, which is a lot more optimistic for people with severe brain injuries. The goal, of course, after traumatic injury is 
getting back to the community, getting back to home, um, getting back to doing the things that people love to do. And sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes after traumatic injury, people are not able to go back to work and not able to do the things they used to do, but they still have the ability to have a good quality of life. And that is something um, that's very emphasized in the recent literature that even if someone isn't able to communicate verbally, um, they may be able to communicate other ways like using an arm or using a head laser or an eye gaze device. Um, and when you look at the spinal cord population, which is a little bit easier to study, um, in terms of their quality of life outcomes, um, just because they're typically more um, cognitively alert, they, they say time and time again that even for people who did not think that they would ever want to live with a high cervical spinal cord injury, after they have the injury, their view changes and they want to live and they want to um, be with their family and do things. So we need as physicians and especially as rehab doctors to be less pessimistic about this population and to advocate for them, champion them, find ways to help them achieve their goals. Um, I wanted to post this also to highlight the uh, resources that are available to you, Nidler and the uh, Model Systems Knowledge Translation Center post a lot of information on traumatic brain injury, burns, spinal cord injury, and have a lot of updated data because they're always gathering, res um, gathering research on the, these populations, traumatic brain injury patients, as well as spinal cord and burn patients. And here's one um, schematic from all of this data showing the, the employment after uh, traumatic brain injury for all kinds of, of levels of injury. So you can see here, um, this is quite a large population size, over 17,000 patients who had a traumatic brain injury, 61% were employed before their injury, and at a year, um, much fewer were still employed, and at year two, you know, still not very many employed. The problem with data like this is it it doesn't show you the reasons for that. So that could be because people are not getting the services they need. It could be because we're not looking long enough out. We're not looking at the 10-year data. We're not seeing what can happen in recovery, um, giving patients a long enough amount of time. The Glasgow Outcome Scale is important to know because it can be very useful for both physicians and families to in your conversations with families, in talking about prognosis, um, in categorizing what you think is going to happen for a patient. Do you think they're going to be moderately disabled? Will they have a good recovery? Um, will they stay in a vegetative um, sort of state? Um, the, the first score is very self-explanatory. If you're dead, you don't have any kind of outcome scale to, to present. But in the vegetative um, grade, uh, people are either in coma or they have severe deficit. They're always dependent for cares. They're going to need 24-7 support when they go home. Um, those in a severe disability category, they may have significant deficits that impair their ability to work or return to school. Um, in the moderately disabled category, they typically will have minor deficits. They can often return to employment. And good recovery means that they've either returned to their previous level or they have very minor deficits and they are able to return to work in school. 
the prognosis conversation is tough because this is where um, it is, I think, helpful to split out mild brain injury patients from those who are more severe or those who have a disorder of consciousness. Um, the, there was a recent paper um, showing practice guidelines for the management of concussion, and they walk through um, the, this prognosis talk. Um, and it's, it's helpful to understand that that most people with mild injuries recover and recover fully. However, there are about 20% of that population that experience symptoms like headache, like dizziness, um, like um, you know, depressed mood longer than a month after their injury. And that people who are more likely to have problems with their recovery are those that have pre-existing conditions. They had migraines their whole life or they were struggling with depression um, before the accident and the traumatic brain injury that they had didn't improve anything. Um, people who have more symptoms early on are more likely to have symptoms long-term. Uh, there's a nice um, scale, symptom scale that you can look at called the Neurobehavioral Symptom Inventory that you can Google and it's a PDF form that just highlights common symptoms that people experience after a head injury. Um, and you can kind of use that to see if you're not familiar already, what kinds of symptoms we're talking about. Um, the nice thing is to see is that children typically are able to get back to school pretty quickly and adults are typically able to return to work pretty quickly after one to two weeks. But know that not everyone does. So it's, when you're counseling patients, you want to be positive because we know that patients that you know, feel that their doctors are positive and they convey a positive mes message, do better. But you also want to keep in mind that not everyone will recover fully and some people will need to be supported and will need some assistance in their recovery. Um, this is looking at a couple of really important papers that have come out in the prognosis for more severe, uh, the more severe end of the brain injury spectrum. So there's a, a great guideline update on disorders of consciousness management, highlighting the fact that, that we really should be waiting to give our opinions about the prognosis of a patient with a severe brain injury for at least a month after that injury. They say 28 days. So what happens often in the ICU is that we see a patient, they look terrible, they're not following commands, and we say, oh, well, they're, they're probably not going to do well. Well, you can't really say that. And the, the recent literature shows that we should be waiting to give our prognostic um, have a prognostic conversation with families until that 28 day mark at minimum. Um, and then this article here, um, this 10 year follow up is fantastic because it's a large population of patients um, coming out of the, the model systems uh, research data um, followed for 10 years. And it shows that patients do pretty well, um, that even people who are classified as having a disorder of consciousness have potential for improvement after one year and even at 10 years. Um, and this one is this predicting tool, um, this summary that is excellent by Walker et al. from 2018, showing that, um, again, there's potential for improvement after a year, um, highlighting again that post-traumatic amnesia duration is the most important predictor of prognosis. Um, there was a pretty good recovery rate. So good recovery, meaning 
the patient had minimal deficits, 66%. That's phenomenal. Um, knowing that age certainly is a predictor and your socioeconomic status, and this is an incredibly important um, conversation to have with you all, especially in the climate that we have in this country right now. Um, there's a lot of negative things going on in this country right now, but what's good about it is it's bringing some of these issues to the forefront. Um, and I think that ultimately will benefit our traumatic brain injury patients because you know, it is a fact that people that are um, a lower socioeconomic status, um, black people, Hispanic people, um, people who don't have as many resources are not having as good of outcomes and we can do better for this population. Um, we can, you know, so I, so I, anyway, I'm just excited about it because I think that we um, have a lot to offer as brain injury doctors and physiatrists um, to educate the community and um, the medical community, other doctors, about potential for our population. Um, and I believe that's about it. I wanted to acknowledge um, my colleagues from TIER that helped to put together similar talks that I pulled from to create this content. Um, all fantastic people, all deserve recognition. So I put that here. And then if any of you are interested in um, more reading, if you're interested about this topic and you want something that's not quite as dry as listening to a lecture or um, reading a textbook, these are some fun reads. So I just had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Sandel um, with some of the UC Davis medical students um, and residents and I think one of their new fellows about her book um, on concussion. It's very accessible uh, language and it would be fun even if you have family members that are interested. Crash Reel is a phenomenal documentary about a young man, um, Kevin Pierce, who had a snowboarding accident. He's a professional snowboarder, um, was, going to, was training for the Olympics in Park City and he crashed and had a traumatic brain injury and they go through his whole process. And uh, Rights Come to Mind, phenomenal book about the severe end of the brain injury spectrum, those with disorders of consciousness and some of the ethical issues that come up and things to consider as uh, physicians. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to, let's see, minimize my screen. Okay, and look at the chat box if there's any questions. That, that was awesome. Oh, Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, that's so great. Thank you. All right, I'm reading your... Um, Message. I was curious if you could discuss how your role as a physiatrist differs in TBI patient care from that of a neurologist or other specialist involved and how you interact with these other specialists to deliver the most appropriate care to TBI patients. Excellent question and one that I'm actually exploring myself because um, I'm working with a neurologist, a neurocritical care neurologist and a neurosurgeon at UC Davis right now to create this multidisciplinary TBI clinic. Um, so our lens as a TBI rehab doctor, my lens is more about um, function 
and getting people back to the quality of life, right? So a neurologist, a neuro, neurocritical care neurologist, especially um, like Dr. Martin, who I'm working with at UC Davis, is thinking more about, okay, the patient's got a traumatic brain injury. What are the medical things that are going on with the patient? Um, are they having seizures? Are they having sleep disorders? Um, they're gonna be more focused on the acute side. And then long-term, I'm gonna be more focused on can they get dressed? Can they you know, get to the bathroom? Can they go back to work? Can they go back to driving? Um, is their spasticity getting in the way of, of their function? Should I be injecting um, them with neurotoxins? Should I be doing phenol? Should I consider a baclofen pump? Should I send them to a neuropsychologist for neuropsychology testing to get, uh, to get their ability to return to work evaluated? Um, so, so I think that's how our role differs. Um, but you want to create a relationship if you can to uh, all these different players in a patient's care because, um, because it, it's a whole, it takes a village and it's a whole spectrum. Uh, I was wondering if there are any difference in application of some of these strategies regarding disorders of consciousness and delayed prognostication in non-traumatic brain injury, like anoxic brain injury or strokes. Um, great question. Um, so there, there are differences in prognosis for those with anoxic brain injury and stroke. Um, stroke is typically, a typical stroke, like a right MCA stroke, is pretty predictable. Um, and it's sort of a separate thing. So I'm not going to talk too much about stroke, but anoxic brain injury gets put into traumatic brain injury quite a lot. Um, Anoxic brain injury is, uh, you know, typically is associated with worse prognosis and outcome. Um, these patients often, so let me explain a little bit about anoxic brain injury. Um, anoxic brain injury is a lack of oxygen to the brain. Um, your, your brain is very sensitive and particularly a few different structures of the brain are very sensitive to lack of oxygen. One being the hippocampus, that's very testable the other being the basal ganglia and uh, the cerebellum. So what you see in anoxic brain injury is patients not being able to consolidate memories because your hippocampus consolidates memories and they have a lot of trouble with balance and coordination. Um, and they typically have more severe injuries longer term. So um, anoxic brain injury patients compared to traumatic brain injury patients tend to have a worse prognosis. Um, uh, medical services being applied more in TBI rehabilitation. Um, so by paramedical, um, you're probably thinking of supportive services like um, neurooptometry, neuropsychology, um, TBI. So in the TBI acute rehab setting, um, the people that we work very closely with are the neuropsychologists, especially um, uh, because of looking at emerging consciousness, especially for a disorders of consciousness program, as well as their capacity to use their working memory, um, their ability to live independently. Um, we work quite closely as well with neurooptometry, especially at TIER we did. And Unlike neuro-ophthalmology, which is more looking at the brain and eye um, connection, the, the neuro-optometrists are trying to troubleshoot 
uh, whether the patient can see, whether they have double vision. And if they have double vision, maybe we could use some prism lenses to help their vision so that they aren't so dizzy in therapy, that sort of thing. So neurooptometry is great. Uh, we work very closely with neurology, especially with sleep medicine neurology and also um, uh, epileptology, that division of neurology because of post-traumatic seizures. Um, endocrinology because um, of the neuroendocrine things that can come up after the pituitary has been um, altered or damaged. Um, and then of course our therapists and I like our physical therapists or occupational therapists our speech therapists speech to work on the cognition, the language, the swallowing, um, uh, OT to work on, um, so many things, activities of daily living, cognition, uh, vision, physical therapy, obviously, balance, motor function, coordination. Um, and then from Carissa, how often do you see where even mild TBI patients have convergence or accommodation insufficiencies? Very often. Um, I left out one of my slides. I should have put it up there because um, it, I just felt like there was too much information in this talk, but I put together a for a board review course um, that shows the incidence of different cranial nerve injuries. Um, and your oculomotor nerve, um, cranial nerves, you know, three, two, four, six are quite commonly injured. Even in the mild uh, injury population, you will see quite often accommodation issues, um, which can then cause um, headaches can then cause problems being on the computer, can cause balance problems. So, so yes, uh, I think having a, a relationship with a neurooptometrist is really important, whether or not you're going to be working with severe or mild patients. Um, uh, from Vinny, yes, Vinny, I have seen fish oil used in traumatic brain injury recovery. Um, and I think the key here is that the brain, the, the idea here with fish oil um, and brain injury recovery is that um, your myelin in the brain, so the myelin that coats your axons in the brain, um, require fat and that fish oil could be a healthy fat to be ingesting. Um, I don't think there's any harm in using it. I haven't seen anything that's a, you know, anything strong, um, but that's just my own opinion. I'm not a specialist in the supplement arena. Um, and I have some colleagues um, at, um, in Houston who are much more well-versed in um, some of the supplements that are useful in traumatic brain injury. I will say that uh, magnesium is one that a lot of times we recommend patients take after TBI who are um, in that mild category and are still having headaches. Um, and then fish oil is something that we often recommend trying um, as something that's not harmful. And touch on the roles of N-acetylcysteine and transemic acid after acute TBI. Um, so great question, Stephen. I, you know, I think that that is an excellent, I mean, something that I, I just can't really go into right now for you, but it was something that we could talk offline about. And I should probably just put on, put my email. So if any of you want to um, email me, there you go to everyone that we should talk more about that. But I'm not, I'm actually not as well versed in the literature on N-acetylcysteine and transemic acid.
Thank you, Bay. You definitely didn't need to listen to this talk. You already know everything about that I covered about brain injury. Um, is it becoming standard of care to prescribe it inpatient or outpatient or just used as needed? So I would say on the inpatient side, it's really not being uh, used as a standard of uh, in looking at the supplements um, for brain injury. Uh, I, I would say it's more an outpatient case where a patient comes in and um, perhaps they're looking at ways to improve their recovery even more. Um, on the inpatient side, we're generally trying to stay away from over supplementing people because they're already on a lot of different medications and a lot of times they need supplemental protein, they need supplemental zinc because they have a wound, supplemental vitamin C because they have a wound. Um, so because they're getting so many supplements, a lot of times we don't add things like fish oil or magnesium, at least not right now. Yeah. People get on a lot of medicine. <laughs> All right. That was awesome. Thank you so much. That was a really, oh, you're welcome. really awesome talk. Uh, coming from a medical student perspective, I think it was super helpful. But Yay. <laughs> if you have any last words or uh, anything that you wanted to, to plug or anything like that, you can feel free to do that now. But we really thank you. It was very helpful. And we'd love to have you back to go take a deep dive into one of the topics that you kind of highlighted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to. And um, I, I'd be happy to do this again, digging a little more into some of the other topics like spasticity and things that uh, really deserve their own talk. But um, I appreciate you all for, for being online and to those of you who listen to this after the fact. Um, and thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Dr. Capizzi for her excellent information. To join future education sessions, as well as catch up on more of our content, head to pmrscholars.org.